This is They Create Worlds, episode 136, Ocean Software. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Well, we're going to have to go across the ocean today, Alex, off to a distant land that we have never talked about before, England. Across the ocean? I thought we were diving into the ocean. We better get our skivvies on and get diving deep, deep into the ocean then and looking for the buried treasure of software. Something like that. I don't know. I come up with these crazy things on the fly. Yes, today we are going to go across the pond once again to look at what was really one of the biggest software houses in the entirety of the United Kingdom in the 1980s and early 1990s, that being Ocean Software. The story of Ocean is not particularly complicated, quite frankly, but it also serves as a great microcosm for the way the British industry developed generally, because as Ocean grew, so did the larger industry. And you can draw a lot of lessons out of Ocean that applied to kind of the rise and fall of British software houses in general in this time period. Has Ocean Software come up before when we looked at the software and hardware aspects of the British 8-bit computer era, or was it after that all happened? Oh, I'm sure they must have come up. They were a big player, obviously, on all of those platforms. ZX Spectrum, Commodore 64, Amstrad, Amiga. They were there throughout, and they were a big player, so I'm sure we mentioned them. Another place where we definitely mentioned them was in our look at Infogrom, because the ignominious end of Ocean Software is being one of those many, many companies devoured by Infogrom in its period of rapid expansion in the late 1990s, early 2000s. So we've talked about them a little bit, and we haven't really delved deeply into its foundation, its full development, and all that fun stuff. We know in England there is the rich history of the bedroom coder, where a lot of people just sort of went, hey, I'm going to make this awesome program, hand it out there, see who wants to buy it. Then we had all these little software houses that just sort of grew up and just tried to take up all those little software, aggregate them all together to make it easier for software to disseminate between all the different people out there. Where in this narrative does Ocean Software come in? Ocean Software is there right at the beginning of this transition that you were just talking about a second ago, where you had all of these bedroom coders, they were having fun, they were making games. Now you have software houses, software publishers starting to coalesce that are starting to source these games from these bedroom coders and get them on the market. The one thing that makes Ocean stand out from the early companies in this field, and the reason why it was probably successful when some of those others were not, is that the blokes behind this thing were actually a little older than your typical software entrepreneur in this period, and they had been around the bend a few times already and kind of had a sense of how to run a business. The two gentlemen I am talking about here are, of course, John Woods and David Ward, who were the two main founders of the company. There was a financial guy that was a partner of David's that was also there pretty early, but really it's Ward and Woods 
that we talk about. These two guys were friends going way back. They met when they were 17. Funnily enough, they didn't go to school together, but they lived right down the street from each other. So I assume one or both of them were in private schools or preparatory schools or something. So their paths didn't cross academically, but they did cross socially in the neighborhood. They discovered that they had similar sensibilities, similar ideas about business. When uh, describing the two, generally speaking, David is the one that's considered the entrepreneur, the visionary, the one that comes up with the ideas and is pie in the sky and is like, wouldn't it be great if we did this? The creative side. Yeah, I mean, he's not a creative in the sense that we've talked about usually in the context of these technology companies where he has anything to do with software development, because neither of these gentlemen had anything to do with that. Creative in the sense of being the ideas man, absolutely. John Woods, then, is more of the businessman. He's more of the guy that's good at building structure and taking an idea and being like, okay, well, if we're really going to do this idea, we're going to need this, 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 and this. Now let's go about getting that in place. They really complemented each other quite nicely in that sense. I think both of them were very, very important to the success of this company. The company wouldn't have gotten anywhere if it were just one or the other. And then that third guy that I talked about just a second ago that was partnered in business with David Ward was Mike Barnes. He's kind of the unsung third founder. I don't know if he was technically there from the moment the company was established, but he was already in business with David before the company was established in other ventures, so he may have been but he's usually not mentioned in the same breath as the co-founders. But he was a financial guy. So he was kind of the third leg of that tripod. So they had their ideas guy, their structure guy, and their money guy. They founded this company together. So David and John had been in business with each other before, going way back. They'd had a few crazy ventures, kind of David leading the way, as would be expected from what I just said. One of the first things, maybe even the very first thing they did together is they started getting involved in the clothing business. The clothing business. In the clothing business. Yeah, importing. They came up with the idea that you had high fashion houses that were selling women's clothing, and you had high fashion houses that were selling to men. But at the time, it was not very common for there to be kind of unisex boutiques that were selling to both. Now, they didn't invent this concept, but they were very early days on it. They realized that there really wasn't anything serving the young, perhaps slightly more cost-conscious person on the go that was just maybe want jeans and a t-shirt, but something stylish in jeans and a t-shirt, not just off-the-rack kind of boring. It was also a time, regretfully, I'm not sure if this was in the 60s or the 70s, Probably the 70s, but this is before Ocean by quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I think in the 70s. At the time, Middle Eastern styles, colorful fabrics, and that kind of thing were very popular. So David Ward came up with the idea that he could go direct to Morocco and load up on a lot of cheap clothing there, then bring it back and market it as this kind of unisex, a little cheaper style for people on the go kind of thing and retail it in the United Kingdom. He drove down to Spain, caught the boat over to Morocco, loaded up his car with clothing, then turns out that you're not supposed to just go over and 
buy a bunch of clothes and then try to bring them back into Spain. The Spanish authorities assumed that he was dealing in black market merchandise that was going to be sold in Spain. Let's just say this ended with a night in a Marrakesh jail as everything was being sorted out. That doesn't sound pleasant. Well, you know, like I said, he's the ideas guy, not the structure guy. He's just like, clothing, I can get into Morocco and go. (laughs) The business did get going then, though, after that. Uh, Next time he flew down (laughs) instead of driving down, and he made sure he had all the the contracts and everything in order and (laughs) customs and everything in order. So they did this business for a bit and had some degree of success with that until kind of the end of the 1970s when the chain stores started emulating the same kind of thing. Finally, the chain fashion stores and boutiques realized that this was a market they had not been tapping, and once they got into it, there was really no way for this little fly-by-night thing that Woods and Ward were doing to keep going successfully. So at that point, David actually relocated to the U.S. for four years and opened a nightclub in Los Angeles. Like I said, this is an ideas man. He just has an idea and goes with it. It was while he was there that he was first introduced to video games because, as he puts it, a uh, mafia type, though I don't know that it was actually a mafia type or who is just the local operator or distributor for his region and, you know, the stigma of coin-op and mafia and all of that stuff. But that's just his words. He said the local mafia types, but it could have just been the local coin-op operator with the root in the area, brought in some coin-op games and convinced him that he should set those up in the nightclub. We're talking about uh, the very end of the 70s, the very beginning of the 80s, so right when coin-operated video games are becoming huge and showing up everywhere. They get a Galaxian machine in, then they get a Pac-Man machine and a Space Invaders machine, They are really popular. They're so popular that most people, instead of being there dancing, which is what the club is ostensibly there for, they're playing the games instead. They make a lot of money. It's a 50-50 split with the operator, which is standard in the industry. He realizes, hey, this video game thing is kind of big. Flash forward to end of 1981, beginning of 1982. He gets back to Britain. And he learns about this whole computer thing that's just starting up, the ZX81, ZX80. You know, we're not quite to the spectrum yet, but he realizes that this video game thing that was so popular in the U.S. is actually popular in Britain, too. But the main place where it's happening is on these computers. So he reconnects with his friend, John and basically says, they've got these computers coming along, and you wouldn't believe these arcade games that I saw in the United States. If we could translate those arcade games into games for these new computers, there is money in this business. John thinks about it and is like, okay, yeah, why not? Why don't we try that? John and David are both from Liverpool originally. It just so happens that Liverpool is where this British software scene is just starting to mature. The bedroom coders are all over the place, but in terms of a formal structure, a lot of what's going on is going on in Liverpool. Liverpool is where the Byte Shop, the very first computer store that we know of in the United Kingdom, opened up by Bruce Everest. It attracted people from all over the country because since it was the only one and Britain's not that big, 
people would drive from other areas of the island to come to the store because it was just about the only game in town. Out of that store, some of his employees, two of his employees that were working part-time, college students, by the names of Tony Baden and Tony Milner, who were Oxford students, once they graduated Oxford, they founded the first sort of big computer game company in Britain, not the very first one, but one of the very first ones to make any headway, Bug Bite in 1980, because they already had that connection with Liverpool and the Bite Shop. They founded it in Liverpool as well. Then after they had had a little bit of success, a couple of their employees, because these are just a couple of Oxford chemistry graduates, they're not savvy businessmen or anything, a couple of their employees... Mark Butler and Dave Lawson decided that they could do one better, and in 1982, they leave Bug Bite to find Imagine. Then the year after that, Matthew Smith, who we've talked about before, he did Manic Miner, and it was a big hit for Bug Bite. So then some other people defect away from Bug Bite, thinking that they can poach Matthew Smith and do one better, Alan Matten being the main guy there, and they form a company called Software Projects. So there's been this whole scene coalescing in Liverpool. They're kind of right there in the heart of knowing what's starting to go on in this business. But one thing they definitely decide is they don't want to be in Liverpool too, because it's getting awfully crowded in Liverpool. Between Bug Bite and Imagine and Software Projects, which comes along just a little later, there's not a lot of oxygen left in the room for them. So they instead decide to locate in Manchester. Manchester is still in the Midlands. It's still an old industrial city. It doesn't have quite the stigma that Liverpool does. I can't say that I am an expert on British class-conscious stuff, but the British are very class-conscious. Certainly, all of these industrial towns are looked down upon by the elite set down in London, but I think Manchester is uh, considered a little more acceptable of an address than Liverpool is just in the social hierarchy of things. So they set up shop in Manchester with a company that they call Spectrum Games, 1982. David Woods at this time also has another business. They move into this old shipping firm building from the 19th century, a Victorian building that's no longer there. And the majority of this big building that, that has warehouse space and everything else is actually to David's other business, with Mike that we talked about earlier, which was actually sourcing props for a television production company called Granada TV that did some of the major shows in the UK, like the long-running Coronation Street. They would source props and rent out props to a TV production company, and that's what the majority of the floor space of this building in Manchester was. But then in the little corner, they started up this Spectrum software thing. Right from the beginning, they had a plan. Obviously, they knew they needed to source software, but they also knew that they were specifically looking to tap into the arcade hits of the time and port them to these machines. Now, that did not make them in any way unique. A lot of the bedroom coder movement was all about, hey, I played this good game you know, down on a holiday in Brighton or wherever. Now that I'm back home and can't play it anymore, I want to dabble in basic and recreate this on my new computer. So a lot of that was going on. They weren't unique in that, but that was very specifically where their focus was. Because they didn't know exactly what the market looked like, 
they actually did a kind of clever ploy. They decided to start advertising their product before they really had product. Doesn't that sound like a really bad thing? We do that a lot today where we call that vaporware. (laughs) Well, it could be a problem. It absolutely could be a problem. They could also get themselves in trouble with the law, actually, in the United Kingdom, because this was a mail-order business that they were setting up. All of the early British business was done pretty much through mail-order, with the occasional uh, computer fair where you could sell stuff in person. Really wasn't much in stores yet. Even the few computer stores that were around were dealing in hardware, generally not in software. If you advertise something and someone sends you money for it, on the basis of your advertisement, and they don't get something within 28 days, then you're actually in violation of the uh, protocols of the Bail Order Association, which doesn't necessarily mean a fine, but at the very least, I think it means you have to give those people their money back. They picked four games that they knew were particularly popular in the arcade. Very obvious choices, Space Invaders, Frogger, Missile Command, and Pac-Man came up with their own versions that were written by the local bedroom coder set. Paul Owens, I believe, was the first one they hired. They actually put an ad in the Manchester paper, and Paul Owens was the one who answered it. He did the Frogger game. He didn't do all of them, but he was one of the key early guys. But they released these games as Road Frog, Rocket Command, Monster Muncher, and Space Intruders. Just plain ripoffs. They didn't know which computers would be the most popular, so they advertised them for everything. They advertised them for the ZX Spectrum. They advertised them for the VIC-20. They also initially advertised that they would make them available for the BBC Micro. However, they didn't get a lot of response on the BBC Micro. We've talked about it before, but it was an expensive computer that everybody used in the school, but very few people actually brought home. So instead, they just focused on the VIC-20 and ZX Spectrum versions, and that's what they released. They figured that these were pretty simple games that could be done pretty quickly, so it would be okay if they started sending out feelers and they'd have time to get the games made and shipped once they had an idea of what was actually going to be successful. And it seems like they pretty much made that work question mark question mark i don't think they got into any kind of serious trouble that was the start of the company it was a mail order business they had one coder on staff paul owens they had a couple of other bedroom coder types that they solicited games from they were just doing arcade knockoffs very soon a game called kong joined those first four which was a donkey kong ripoff they were on their way the only kind of problem was the name They had chosen to call themselves Spectrum Games, which is an okay name except for the fact that there's a computer called the ZX Spectrum. They sell games for other computers besides just the ZX Spectrum. So your average consumer is going to look at that and go, all right, I need video games, sunshine games, happy games, Spectrum Games. Okay, great. Spectrum Games. I have a ZX Spectrum. Let's give them all my money. Fantastic. Another customer goes, I have a VIC-20. Oh, look, there's this game company called Spectrum Games. Now, I can't look at them because they're probably only for that ZX Spectrum thing. 
Oh, look, happy games. I'm going to go buy stuff from them. (laughs) Exactly. So it became clear very quickly that was not going to work. It was especially true when they moved out of mail order, because at least in the mail order business, it's still a, a horrible confusion, but at least in the mail order business, people are responding to some ad you've put in a magazine and you can splash very prominently on that ad. We make games for this computer, this computer, this computer. If your game is just on the rack in a store, that's not so easy to do. One would hope that the store has things organized by system, but shopping for games in computer stores back in the day when you had all sorts of incompatible formats side by side was a hard enough thing for even an aficionado to do without the added confusion of that name. You were very lucky if they even told you which computer platform the game was for. Right. So once they got into Boots, which was kind of the first high street store that really started pushing computer games to their advantage, they realized, okay, we got to change this name. Don't know exactly where the name comes from. There's one story about it, but I don't think everybody agrees on that story. So it's maybe apocryphal. It's one of those two good to be true stories. There's a story that they were having the discussion about the name. A van happened to pass by their window of their conference room or office or wherever they were. This van belonged to some company called Ocean Transport. So John Wood sees that out the window and is like, hey, why don't we call it Ocean? So they did. That's one story. The way David Ward remembers it is that they chose it because it was kind of a universally recognizable word, at least according to what he says in the various European languages. Their word for ocean is pretty much the same. It's close enough that ocean would have the same connotation like wherever they might be spelling. The ocean is something that is really, really big. It kind of gives the impression of them being something really, really big, kind of that subconscious connection. How much of any of what I've just told you is true and how much of it is all just wishful thinking and fantasizing and tale-telling after the fact, I don't know. But that's their stories, and they are sticking to it. Either way, by the time we get to 1983, Spectrum Games is no more, and instead we have Ocean, or Ocean Software. They've done these first couple of early games uh, that we just talked about, these arcade conversions, but really they decide right away that to really stand out in this market, because you have all of these bedroom coders doing all of these knockoffs. It's not like they've got the only Space Invaders or Pac-Man out there. They come to the logical conclusion that they really need to license product in order to stand out from the crowd. License could mean one of two things. It could mean licensing an existing title, like licensing Pac-Man instead of releasing you know, their Muncher game, Or it could mean finding a personality, a media property, etc. that's very big and acquiring that license. We've talked about this in the context of the British market in some of our British episodes, how you had this trend towards licenses as the 1980s went on. We did an episode on Elite Systems, which was another company that was very early on this whole, hey, let's do licensing thing. Ocean was even a little earlier than them because Elite didn't exist until 84 and Ocean was starting its licensing activities in 83. But we kind of talked about this in the Elite Systems episode, how Ocean and Elite kind of became the two leaders in this idea of going out and finding properties and licensing properties. And we talked a little bit about how they were often in competition with each other 
for specific properties in that episode. Going back again to your question at the top of the episode, we talked about Ocean before. Elite Systems is another episode where Ocean was a constant presence because of that back and forth and competition. They decide that they need to get themselves a hit coin-op property rather than just releasing another one of their clones. Being a small British software house, they're kind of behind the curve on this a little bit. Your Ataris and the like have already been very aggressively doing licensing because Atari is getting stuff on not just in the U.S., but they're getting stuff on computer platforms in the United Kingdom. They even have some U.K. coders doing some work for them. A lot of the big games are already tied up, but it just so happens that there is a British coin-op company. There aren't many coin-operated video game companies in Britain that are actually making games, but there's one right down the street from them, not literally down the street, but figuratively down the street from them in Manchester called Century Systems. They have a platforming game called Hunchback. I don't think Hunchback was ever really that big a deal in the United States. It was released here, I believe, but it wasn't much of a thing. But in its native Britain, it did pretty well. I mean, we're not talking Space Invaders well. We're not talking Pac-Man well. But this is a game that the British consumer knew and the British consumer was interested in. Because it was by this little Manchester company, it was a game that had escaped the attention of the Ataris and Midways and whatever else of the world. So they do a license for Hunchback. It's really not much of a game. The port, quite frankly, isn't really that much of a port. The game was very much at the right place at the right time, and Hunchback kind of became the breakout hit for Ocean, and the company was Ocean by the time that was released. However, even though they've got this arcade game that's working well right now, management is pretty convinced that coin-operated games are going to end up being a fad. You know, they weren't exactly wrong about that. Not that coin-op went away. I mean, there were some hugely successful conversions of coin-op games later in the decade as the industry picked back up again. But in that exact moment in 1983, there's no doubt that the market was starting to dwindle a little bit. So they didn't want to just be beholden to the coin-op market. They started looking what else they could do, where else could they license, and where's a hole that we can find to insert ourselves to do a license where maybe one of the big boys in the United States or Japan hasn't caught on yet, or it's something that wouldn't necessarily appeal internationally, but would appeal in Britain where they are doing their business. So the 1984 Olympics are coming up. The 1984 Olympics were a very, very big deal being held in Los Angeles, so in the English-speaking world. I mean, that was the first time the Summer Olympics were being held in in an English-speaking country in a long time. Even beyond that, because that aspect of it isn't necessarily as important to the British as it is to the Americans who were hosting the Summer Games for the first time in a very, very long while. But in addition to that, you had the intrigue surrounding the heightened Cold War tensions, The 1980 Olympics, Summer Olympics had been in Moscow, and the U.S. had boycotted. So now the Olympics were coming to the U.S., and what are the Soviets going to do, and kind of became this proxy of the the East-West struggle. Of course, as we learned in The Simpsons, McDonald's did a sweepstakes that year where 
They were giving away free this and free that if Americans won certain events. They deliberately skewed most of those prizes towards events that the Soviet bloc always dominates. The Soviet bloc boycotted, and people got free hamburgers all year long. Simpsons did an episode set in 1984 where it was Krusty Burger instead of McDonald's, but the story itself (laughs) is actually true. I'm sure Jeff now will diligently find a video talking about that for the show notes. The point is, the 1984 Olympics were a big deal, particularly in the English-speaking world, and so Ocean thought that this would be a great way to get involved. Of course, Konami thought the exact same thing. I mean, Olympic mania was really everywhere in 1984 in a way that I don't think it had been in a long time. That's why Konami in 1983 had done the game track and field. Track and field had great gameplay, and the people at Ocean thought that doing some kind of conversion of track and field would be good business for them. But because of this feeling that just having a coin-op license or just copying a coin-op game was maybe not going to be as effective in the coming years because of what was seen as the faddish nature of this business, they decided that they needed an extra wrinkle. That extra wrinkle was a gentleman of African descent by the name of Daly Thompson. Daly Thompson is not a household name in the United States, nor should he be, because he's British. He was one of Britain's greatest Olympians in this time period. He did the decathlon, which is considered the toughest, most grueling of all Olympic events because it's 10 events in one. He was a heavy favorite to win the gold medal at the 1984 Olympics in the decathlon. So he was a legitimate British athletic star. So they decided, what if we took track and field style gameplay and married it to a Daly Thompson license? Sounds good to me. We've done that in the United States where we just tie a sports thing to a personality. We've done it with Madden football. We've done it with Larry Bird and Dr. J with basketball. This is a known Mm -hmm. thing, this kind of sport popularity. I tie someone who's very popular in a sport or an event, and I tie it to a game. Absolutely. So they do Daley Thompson's decathlon. It's a little bit of a gamble, only because if he didn't win the gold medal, he wouldn't have the same degree of hero worship in Britain, and it might affect sales. So they did the game, and then they waited and prayed, and he did. He won the gold medal in the decathlon. So the game, I think, comes out in late 1984, definitely 84, but I think late 84, after he had won the gold medal. So that's built-in advertising, built-in marketing right there. It's a humongous hit. Hunchback is the game that gets them on their way, but Daley Thompson's Decathlon is really the game that puts them on the map, and not surprisingly, it has several sequels. I do want to mention briefly about Daley Thompson, just because it's kind of funny. We've talked before about the ZX spectrum and how it has very interesting ways that it does colors and a very limited color palette, right? Right. So how does ZX spectrum works is it actually has various zones and those zones can be any one of 16 colors or so. That causes an issue where you have a transition point between one section and another. Your knight can have two colors at once as he walks through a door or something. This can be a little amusing, this can be a little jarring, but depending, or you can just find it, hey, it's just a quirk of the system. Right. So in this case, because of the limited color palette they had to work with, 
There were only two choices of color for Daley Thompson himself. Remember, I said just a few minutes ago was a gentleman, or is, he's still alive as of this recording, a gentleman of African descent. The only two colors that they could use were red or white. Oh, dear. According to the programmer, they had Daly in, because Daly had final approval, his name's on it. They had Daly in, and they showed him the two color choices, and Daly Thompson himself chose white, because it looked nicer than whatever hideous red they would have had to go with. The first couple of Daly Thompson decathlon games definitely have him represented by a white sprite. There's no racism. There's no whitewashing. It's not trying to make any kind of racial statement. And and Daly himself approved the color from the limited choices. It's just one of those funny quirks because of the nature of the limited hardware that was in use. Just a little aside there. Obviously, we'll have the game in the show notes in whatever video Jeffrey finds for us. Oh, I'm sure I'll find something entertaining. By 1984, Ocean's doing a pretty good job. This is really the point where it starts to separate itself from the rest of the pack. And it's really because the founders of the company were older and a little more mature. We talked a few minutes ago how kind of Imagine in Liverpool was the first big breakout software house in Britain that tried to do something more professional, by which I mean they had a managing director, they had a marketing team, they had a professional sales guy, they were doing splashy full-color ads. They were getting their games mass-market distribution. Imagine, while it was not the first software publisher in Britain, it was kind of the first to take on all of this professional air. The guys in charge of the company were just a couple of young guys, one of whom was just kind of a programming prodigy. I mean, they were just these young guys living it up. So once the money came in, everybody bought Porsches They rented out more office space than they needed in this huge building, and they started having these fantasies of doing these more and more elaborate games, and they hired lots of staff. They basically blew through all their money. You can see in the documentary uh, Commercial Breaks, that's a documentary series, but a specific episode of this documentary Commercial Breaks, which is on YouTube. I've seen it there, so Jeffrey will dutifully find that and put it in the show notes as well for you. You can kind of see literally the moment where Imagine and Ocean switch places and Imagine starts crashing and burning and Ocean begins its rise to the very top of the market. Commercial Breaks, this documentary series, decided to do a profile of Imagine because it was this big, successful software house that was getting all of this press. But just in case something fell through, they got Ocean as a backup, as another company they would do. Then it turned out that the bottom fell out of Imagine literally as the documentary was being shot. When I say literally as the documentary was being shot, I mean that the sheriffs showed up to shut the place down because of insolvency while the film crew was still filming. And the film crew had trouble getting some of their equipment out of the building because they had to prove to the sheriffs or the bailiffs or whoever that the equipment was theirs and didn't belong to the company because everything the company had was to be sold off to pay its debts. Wow. I can only imagine a poor <laughs> film crew. Like, we're trying to do a shot here. I can almost see, like, a speakeasy where you have the police knock down the door and they are raiding the place and... 
knocking everything over, looking for all the money, grabbing everything they can and shoving it in a truck. <laughs> that's my computer. That's my uh, camera. That's my bag. That's oh. my whatever. It was a somewhat chaotic scene. I mean, the, the film crew wasn't running around because, I mean, they got their stuff back. But the staff of Imagine, some of whom were planning to go off and start new companies out of the ashes of Imagine, they were literally hiding in bathroom stalls with computers so that the bailiffs wouldn't take them away. <laughs> but, I mean, it ended up being better than the documentary makers could have possibly imagined, pun intended, because they had this story that they were able to capture in real time of this company falling apart, but because they had secured Ocean as a backup, they were able to film the documentary instead as a contrast between failing Imagine and Rising Ocean. So they got a lot of press on that, and they were starting to become really the big company, and it's because they had disciplined management. It was really the only one of the early computer software companies, it and Mastertronic, which was in the budget software business, were really the only two of the early computer publishers, computer game publishers in the United Kingdom, that were run by older, more experienced, more professional entrepreneurs that understood how to grow a business slowly and carefully not just squander all the money they made on Porsches and hookers and blow and whatever else. So this was truly important, and this is kind of why Ocean survived this early period and started building this foundation as one of the truly great companies. And I think a lot of that might have been because they actually did have a little bit of experience. As you said, the ideas guy here, he's gone out there, he's started two other businesses before this. At least, yeah. At least two other businesses. He's sort of gotten into the flow, sort of like gotten all of his kinks out, gotten into those common pitfalls of new business owners fall into and goes, oh, okay, yeah, I know what's supposed to be done, what's supposed to be paced here, who I'm supposed to bring in, what kind of stuff I'm supposed to do so I don't get raided and have to sit in a stall with a computer. <laughs> exactly. If Commercial Breaks the Documentary was the icing on this delicious cake, the cherry on top of this cake that is now also a sundae, because we're throwing all the sweet metaphors in, the cherry on top of this iced cake sundae is that right at the same time, the ocean people were trying to take the next step in their licensing of arcade properties and going out and getting a major Japanese licensee for the first time, in this case, Konami. When they went to Konami, Konami was like, well, I don't know. I don't know that we really want to do this. Those computers you have there are not computers we deal with anywhere else. And if we license to you, are we really going to be the ones that benefit from this? Or is it the Ocean name that's going to benefit from this? I just don't know that you're going to give our games the proper amount of attention they deserve and market them effectively compared to your other products. The Ocean people were like, here's what we can do. We can do a separate label just for you to sell your games. We'll market them as their own line and we'll highlight that line and it'll be great. The line that they decide to do, they decide to buy the Imagine name out of bankruptcy. They don't buy the company. They don't assume any of its debts. They just buy the Imagine name out of bankruptcy. So Imagine becomes a line of ocean products. All they did is they did the trademark name. Yep, they bought the rights to the trademark. <laughs> so they benefited from the collapse of Imagine in all sorts of different ways, and that allowed them to secure the Konami license by promising them a second brand, 
but without hurting their own sales because the second brand was an existing brand the consumers already knew, the Imagine brand, which they bought out of bankruptcy. That was the start of their real big arcade conversion business. They became particularly close to Konami and Taito, especially in this time period. In fact, in the case of Taito, not only did they do a port of Renegade, the very popular beat-em-up that was created by Technos Japan but distributed by Taito, they actually got the rights to do a sequel to Renegade. So there's a game from, I believe, 1987 called Target Renegade that is an original creation. It's not based on an arcade game. It's not based on Double Dragon, you know, the actual kind of semi-sequel or anything like that. They even got the rights to do their own follow-up sequel, Target Renegade, in 1987, which was a a decent-sized hit for them. They've got that going. They've got some of the other licenses going. They're starting to get involved in the licensing of properties as well. The company's getting bigger. They move into a new building, into an old Quaker hall, an old Quaker meeting hall. The company takes on kind of this very upstairs, downstairs vibe. Kind of on the first floor is where all the salespeople, the marketing people, the executives and everything are. And then down in the basement of the building is where all of the programmers and artists and all of the creative people are. They realize that it's a good idea to have control over the product. They are hiring a lot of people in. They're very aggressive on hiring coders, hiring artists, even hiring musicians. Jobs that a lot of the other companies would contract out, or games that a lot of the other publishers would contract out, they were starting to beef up their own internal development. They have more control over the product, which is certainly common in the United States and Japan, but was less common in Britain at the time. They do a combination of in-house and contract stuff. They start farming out some of their secondary licenses that they're getting, like Knight Rider and Street Hawk, a couple of television series. They're farming these out to outside developers to kind of just bash out ports for them. They're not having a lot of luck because a lot of these outside developers, they don't really care. You give them half up front, then they maybe kind of work on it, and maybe they hit their deadline and maybe they don't. And then they come back and we're like, oh, yeah, this game's not finished. Your release date slips, and it's all very dramatic. Then you have to rush a version of your own through production, which is probably not as good. Or maybe you get something that's just kind of half finished from outside. They noticed that they were starting to see a decline by 1985 in a lot of the licensed stuff. So at this point, they bring in the other key hire who really shaped the company more than anyone else other than the two co-founders. That's a gentleman by the name of Gary Bracey. Gary had actually had a software shop in Liverpool. Again, we're back to Liverpool. (laughs) They poach a lot of people from there. A lot of their employees come from Imagine, especially after Imagine goes bankrupt. Well, I mean, you got to take advantage of all those poor souls (laughs) who kept those computers safe in a stall. I mean, if they have that kind of dedication, you want to hire those people. (laughs) Right. Gary Bracey had had a computer game store in Liverpool. It was actually the first computer game store in Liverpool that was specifically dedicated only to games. Obviously, we already talked about other places that were already in existence. This was the first one dedicated actually to games. So he was very in tune with what the kids were buying. The Ocean people knew him and and would often consult with him just to get a sense of what was going on. But Bracey didn't really like owning a store. He decided that retail really wasn't for him. 
the ocean people decided that they needed somebody who understood games and knew what people liked and had a sense of what people liked in order to kind of manage their game development. And so they offered Gary Bracey a job as head of software development, which he accepted. Bracey kind of became the face of corporate with the programmers and the creative types. He was kind of the liaison between those two worlds. He wasn't a technical person. He didn't know that, but he was a very good people manager and a very good people person and did have some sense of what the public liked. So even though he wasn't technical, he was placed in charge of software development to kind of be this facilitator and make sure that everything ran smoothly. So a lot of Ocean's subsequent success was definitely down to that. At this time, they're getting deeper and deeper into the licensing, but they're still kind of nibbling around the edges a little bit, getting properties that fell through the cracks, sometimes not always the properties that one would think were best adaptable into games. They kind of had a breakthrough when they got the rights to, this is going to bring back some unpleasant memories, Jeff, I'm sorry, when they got the rights to a little movie called Platoon. How does that make my life miser? Oh, dear. (laughs) Yes. It's that platoon. The Commodore 64 one? Uh Uh-huh. Not the NES one? It's all the same. I mean, they subcontracted the NES stuff, but it all springs from Ocean. You've had some experience there. Hey, I almost beat that game. Almost, almost, almost. (laughs) I got to the fourth section of it. I can probably still get to at least the tunnel system right now if I had to. Mm -hmm. I think those of us that encountered that game in the U.S., particularly if we encountered the NES port of it, probably not too impressed. It was very hard. (laughs) It's four games in one. Yeah, kind of confusing. But in Britain, where the software scene was very different, It was actually considered a bit of a classic. It was very successful. That whole four games in one thing was actually a big part of that. Even though I didn't have any fun playing through any of those segments, I'll be honest. Not that I played through all of them. I couldn't get as far as you could. But it kind of broke the logjam of how do you adapt a movie that doesn't have a completely linear action style plot to it? The answer to that is, well, let's do four games in one, just as you said, and we'll have the side-scrolling action part where you're dodging booby traps that you can barely tell sometimes are booby traps, but that's beside the point. You know, we can have this going through the cave section, all of these different modes of play. A night battle where you're trying to shoot grenades out of the air that are being thrown at you and shoot people in the dark, followed by a let's have a top-down maze thing Zelda-esque, where you're just going through this giant maze trying to find your little buddy, rescue him, and then get him to the helicopter. Yeah, I wouldn't say that any of it really has much to do with the actual plot of Platoon, but it showed a way forward to adapting a movie product, a license, without just making a side-scrolling action game. Or, and I mean, Ocean did games like that, too. They did a port of Rambo, of one of the Rambo movies, that was literally just Commando. Except with a Rambo sprite instead of a Capcom Super Joe sprite. I mean, that's all it was. They made those kind of lazy ports as well. But it kind of opened up this idea that if you have a movie that doesn't fit just one style of action, 
do a bunch of mini games and then call that your movie game. That was actually very successful for them on Platoon. They only got the Platoon license because nobody else wanted it. It was kind of rejected by everybody because it doesn't really make a good video game to adapt, really. I mean, it's it's not that kind of movie. It's not a Rambo movie. (laughs) Because the Platoon game was so successful, that opened up other opportunities for them, and they started seeing more scripts and being able to bid on more scripts. The real absolute breakthrough then in that was when they got this little script from Orion Pictures called RoboCop. Generally speaking, Ocean preferred proven properties to properties in production. They would rather, in this time period, wait for a movie to come out, see if it's a hit, and then make a game, than take a chance on a property and maybe not have it turn out. Gary Bracey, who's kind of interested in Hollywood and is kind of interested in all of this, he gets the RoboCop script. He reads it. He really thinks it's something else, and he's like, I think this is going to be a hit, and even writes on a post-it note some of the effect of we should get this. This is going to be huge, I think. Woods and Ward get the worldwide video game rights in all forms from Orion Pictures for this little thing called RoboCop, and decide to blitz all forms of media at once, basically. I mean, they do their own computer game ports, but they go to Data East, which they have an existing relationship with a little bit from doing licensing of games. They sub-license to Data East the arcade and home console rights. They also sub-license them the pinball rights because Data East has a pinball division. Then they let Data East go off and work their magic on the arcade game and on the NES game. They turn back around and adapt what Data East does to the computer platforms like the Commodore 64. That's actually kind of ingenious. They don't have to spend all that time and effort actually coming up with gameplay, coming up with sprites, coming up with how does this all work. They just take a finished product and go, all right, let's just tweak this stuff so that it can actually be done on a computer. Mm -hmm. RoboCop becomes an absolute smash. Gary Bracey is pretty sure that it, it sold over a million copies for them, which is not something any Ocean game had certainly ever done before because you're talking about pretty small markets. I don't know if that million includes stuff that Data East sold on the NES or he's just talking about computer platforms, but either way, RoboCop becomes the movie of the summer and it becomes the game of that year, you know, one of the games of that year. They just make money hand over fist. Of course, after RoboCop is even more successful in Platoon, now they have an in on all of the big movie licenses. They're able to at least get in the room. That doesn't mean they close deals for all of them, but they have the ability to now to get in the room for pretty much any movie out there. Another license that they actually already had by this point, they had a, a relationship with Warner which was the parent of DC Comics, still is the parent of DC Comics. They had done a never-ending story game, not important, just to, but just to know that that was there and that had created a working relationship with Warner. They had licensed the Batman character. They had done a couple of Batman games based more on the comic book or old Adam West television show envisioning of the character. John Woods, I think it was John Woods, not David Ward, but one of them got to talking with one of their contacts at Warner and said, well, you know, we're thinking of maybe doing another Batman game. The Warner person was like, you know, of course, that we're doing the new movie, right? Why don't you do the video game adaptation 
of the movie that Tim Burton's doing. So they got the rights on computers, not worldwide everything this time, but they got the rights on computer platforms to Batman, the movie, the big one. The Tim Burton one. Obviously, it's a movie that many people have many opinions on today, and obviously superheroes movies have become their whole thing today. You kind of had to be there in the summer of 1989. Batman was inescapable. And we're not just talking about advertisements on TV or whatnot. Shirts with the Batman logo were everywhere. That was kind of the in thing to wear was a T-shirt with that Batman logo. I mean, it just took over the collective pop culture in almost an unprecedented way. Maybe nothing since Star Wars had. And obviously its long-term legacy hasn't been as huge as Star Wars. But like in that one summer of 89, it like captured imagination more than anything. It, It was quite unbelievable, really. They had the video game rights to the hottest movie property of the year, the computer game rights. In terms of gameplay, they went with the same approach that they did with Platoon. They were like, well, we can do the minigame thing. They had a solid action game already in RoboCop. They had also done an adaptation of the racing game Chase HQ by Taito on 8-bit platforms. So they basically decided, what if we did a game that combined the action sequences of RoboCop with the driving sequences of Chase HQ? Because remember, Chase HQ is not just a straight driving game, there's also the police chase going on in it as well. So it's not just a racing game, it's kind of an action racing game. Let's put these two things together. Let's make this our flagship 16-bit computer product, Commodore Amiga product. It may not have been quite the very first game that they shipped on the Amiga, I don't know, but it was right at the moment they were transitioning to the Amiga. Let's make this audio-visually as amazing as we possibly can on this amazing new 16-bit computer platform. Let's combine the gameplay of two of our biggest, most recent hits, and we are going to have a winner. Then, once they had all of that, they convinced Commodore, which, remember, the Amiga was never a big thing in the U.S., but in the U.K., the Commodore Amiga was a huge and popular platform for computer gaming in the late 80s and early 90s. This was the big kid on the block because the console companies aren't quite penetrating yet. So in 1989, Amiga is where it's at. They convince Commodore to do a Batman bundle where you could buy an Amiga computer with Batman, the movie, bundled with it, and the box would have Batman packaging and everything else. A big Batman bundle. That's sort of in the same vein of CD-ROM games and Myst. Exactly. Batman obviously just blows up incredibly. It's a massive hit with the OEM stuff they're doing. They're bringing in all sorts of money. By the end of the 1980s, Ocean is a $25 million company and has roughly 30% of the European software market. That's quite impressive. They're huge. They've kind of become all-encompassing. They have a lot of talented employees on staff. They also target certain groups of talented freelancers that do very good work. We haven't really talked about them, but they partnered with John Rittman, who uh, did the soccer game Match Day and did the arcade adventures Batman using their license and Head Over Heels. We talked about some of that work in our arcade adventure episode. They're contracting with Denton Design, which is another well-regarded independent software company. 
They're doing lots of internal development with very talented coders and artists. They've got some hot licenses, and they're really just reaping the rewards from all of this. Unfortunately, they're kind of at a crossroads by this point in 1990. The 8-bit platforms that have been their bread and butter for so long are pretty much dead at this point. They're dying. The 16-bit platforms like the Amiga, even though they're having the success with this uh, Batman game, are clearly, even in the United Kingdom, not picking up nearly as much of the market as the 8-bits did. The market is clearly going console, but console is very, very expensive. There's also the possibility of the IBM PC, but moving to the PC is also a problem for a lot of these British companies. That's basically because the PC is a much more open and limitless platform than the Amiga or the Commodore 64 or the ZX Spectrum or the Amstrad lines that they were used to making games for. Some of those computers had a certain amount of expandability, adding more memory or that kind of thing. Of course, the IBM PC was a nearly completely open system. There were a bewildering array of configurations, and of course, they weren't all made by IBM. They were made by Compaq and Dell and all of these other companies as well, Packard Bell, et cetera, et cetera. And so you had lots of different configurations, which meant that you had to take into account lots of different hardware. You had to do lots of extra programming for drivers and graphics standards. You had to do lots and lots of extra testing and quality assurance because you have so many configurations where something can go wrong. This is a complicated platform. In the United States, where there is a fairly large built-in install base for the PC, computer game companies can do this. That doesn't mean it's always easy, but companies like Electronic Arts and Origin and Activision and whoever else can make this jump there more easily than a British company can because the British company, they don't really sell into the U.S. hardly at all. So they're reliant on their local British and, to some degree, larger European install base There aren't as many PCs there being used for gaming. You're not bringing in as much revenue on a title. And so as these development costs go up compared to the older titles, your revenue is not necessarily going up at the same rate. Console, of course, has an even worse problem because you have to get involved in cartridges. 25 million in 1989 makes Ocean a big player in Europe. The big console companies in the United States and Japan your Acclaims, your Konamis, your Capcoms. These are 200, 250, $300 million companies. They are an order of magnitude more financially successful than Ocean is. Console requires huge resources in just ordering the cartridges. We've talked about this many times. You have to guess how much product you need. If you order too much, you'll get stuck with a huge bill and you can't sell them all. If you order too few, because the market is so faddish, by the time you order more and they get replaced in three months, you've missed your market. Ocean's used to being on cassette tape. You release whatever you want, and if this one ends up not being a hit, well, just bin it. Just throw it out. And it doesn't matter. I mean, we've lost almost nothing on that game. If a company ends up being a hit, well, then call the tape duplicator and say, hey, 
we need 10,000 more of these by the end of the week. And the tape duplicator will be like, can do. Cartridges, you can't do that. It's such a different medium. They decide that they have to get into the U.S. market. Getting into the U.S. market means they have to get more and more into console. They establish Ocean of America in, uh, I believe, 1990. They hire Ray Mushi away from Data East to run it. They have a very close relationship with Data East now after RoboCop was so successful for both of them. They bring Ray Mushi in from Data East to set up Ocean of America. They become an affiliated label of Electronic Arts. Electronic Arts will handle manufacturing and distributing of their product in North America. They become a global company. They're also actually rather close to Nintendo as well. They're closer to Nintendo than Sega because they did some licenses. They had done a knockoff Kong game when they were first getting started, but since then they did a licensed Donkey Kong for the British market. They'd done some stuff with Nintendo. They didn't really have the same in with Sega. Sega was working with other companies on their arcade ports. They end up favoring Nintendo more than they end up favoring Sega, even though in the UK market, Sega is actually the bigger company. Ocean is kind of concentrating on trying to get more of an international base. So they focus on Nintendo, which has some interesting positive side effects because Electronic Arts is very closely affiliated with Sega. They also want to release games as time goes on. We're not talking 1990 now. We're talking a couple years later. They also want to release games on the Super Nintendo, but they don't want to focus too much on that because they don't want to endanger their special relationship with Sega. So they actually allow Ocean, who's closer to Nintendo, to publish their Super Nintendo games in Europe so that they can get that Super Nintendo money without jeopardizing their Sega relationship. And then Ocean's close to Nintendo, so that's a nice relationship. That kind of works out for them there in that sense. Yeah, they really start to focus on that market. They continue to hit the licenses hard. Kind of their next big hit is in 1992. They do an Adams Family game that is basically entirely based on Super Mario World in terms of its presentation and mechanics and everything. They do that on the Super Nintendo. It's a sizable hit for them. You know, they're on consoles now. Then in 1993, they secure the biggest of all the licenses, Jurassic Park. Again, another one of these movies that just in that place and time, was a super big deal. Sega had the rights to all the Sega systems, but Ocean secured the rights for the Nintendo systems. Ocean got the rights on the Nintendo systems, but they had to pay $3 million to get it. Back in the day when they were getting their first licenses, they were getting them for like £3,000 before anyone really knew what they had. But now... Everybody knows that licensed properties are big, and so they had to pay $3 million for Jurassic Park. That's a big chunk of change there. Exactly. It's getting harder and harder to compete for a company like Ocean that's a smaller company. The UK market just isn't big and strong enough in console or in PC, the two areas where the whole industry is moving, for Ocean to be able to continue to sustain itself as this big top dog publisher. This is not a problem that's unique to Ocean. This is something that a lot of the British publishers are finding out. The top-tier publishers in Britain are finding out that they're mid-tier publishers at best when competing with the rest of the world. 
they don't have access to venture capital. They don't have access to the UK stock market. They don't have access to the install base that they can make back their money just on producing a big hit. Ocean has done its best to try to get into the U.S. market, and they've seen some success with that, but they're still a relatively small company compared to their peers as publishers in the United States and Japan. By 1994, when they've been doing the console stuff and they've been doing more stuff worldwide, they've really tried to penetrate Europe. They have good distributor relationships in Germany and Spain. They actually end up opening their own office in France because they do not have as good a distributor relationship there, so they decide to go direct. They're getting into continental Europe. They're getting more stuff into the U.S. They have some of these big licenses like Robocop, Batman, The Untouchables of all things was, was big for them, as well as most recently The Addams Family. By 1994, they are a $90 million company. So they've gone from $25 million in 1990 to $90 million in 1994. That's some decent growth. But again, in the context, by 1994, Acclaim and Electronic Arts are $500 million companies. They just can't catch up. Development costs and licensing costs are only getting more and more expensive. In a last-ditch effort to try to grow, in September 1994, they merged together all of their three companies. Ocean of America, Ocean Software, the main company, and Ocean Europe, they merged these three together into a new firm called Ocean Interactive. Then a French media conglomerate called Chargier makes an investment in the company and take 24% of the company. They buy into 24% of the company to give Ocean a chunk of change to try to get over that hump and finally grow into being one of these big players that can continue to sustain themselves in the marketplace. They have a few successes during this period. They ink a deal with Sony. Sony is building a new distribution network in Europe in advance of the PlayStation's launch. They convince Sony that marketing Ocean Games would be a good way for them to stress test and start to fine-tune their distribution network. So they make a deal with Sony, and Sony distributes some of their games in Europe. This is about the time they do that thing with EA, where they get the rights to the Super Nintendo versions of a lot of EA's games. So that's good. But it's just not enough. It's great that this company, Chargier, has given them this investment, but they still can't make it work, not with the way costs are going up and markets are not expanding. More investment just isn't going to do it. Obviously, they tried an investment with Chargur, gave them a quarter of the company almost, and it wasn't enough. Their only choices now, really, are to go public or be acquired. Now, they just can't go public in the United Kingdom. I do not know all the ins and outs of the UK stock market, but I do know that that was just, quite frankly, not an option for any of these British companies, pretty much, these mid-tier publishers. They could go public in the U.S., but their U.S. infrastructure is not that well developed. They have some people there, but they would need much, much, much more management set up in America, much more rigorous financial reporting and all of this stuff to go public. That did not seem like a very viable idea either. That's when they turned voluntarily. They did it voluntarily. They turned to Infogram. 
as we've talked about before, the French stock market in this time period, unlike the British market, is really going all in on computer game companies. Infogrom is just starting to transition itself from a small French publisher to a major worldwide publisher. They need more worldwide publishing infrastructure to make this happen. Ocean is already a global company, but it's a global company without capital to expand. Infogrom is a company with plenty of capital to expand, but without a global distribution infrastructure. So there's a mutual agreement to come together and try to harness the strengths of each of those companies to push Infogrom forward. Infogrom buys Ocean in 1996. They keep them semi-independent for the first couple of years under their own label. During this period, Infogrom is buying a lot of publishing infrastructure. Ocean is kind of their first step, their first dipping of their toe into this international field. But then afterwards, they buy GT Interactive and Accolade. Now they have a bunch of distribution infrastructure that is not Ocean, and in some cases is even bigger than what Ocean has. So they kind of reorganize all of this in 1998. Ocean becomes Infogrom United Kingdom at this point, Infogrom UK. That is the official end of Ocean as a company. That's basically the story. It's really the rise and fall of the British industry in general. Just a couple of guys, a couple of entrepreneurs with an idea and a dream, harnessing bedroom coder talent, starting to bring the best of that bedroom coder talent in-house while also attaching licenses to their products, growing big off the back of several very prominent licenses, but then finding as the 80s give way to the 90s that because of the limitations of their market and the limitations of their finances, that they can't make the jump from mid-tier publisher to top-tier publisher. Once the market becomes more global, they have to sell out to a larger entity from another country and then end up getting absorbed and consumed. Kind of amazing how a lot of these companies go to whole, get acquired route. When they get acquired, does it ever really work out for them? (laughs) I mean, you know, that's an excellent question. It's, It's tricky. For a lot of companies, obviously, it doesn't. That's not always true. I think Bethesda is an example. We'll see how Microsoft treats them now that Microsoft owns it. But I think Bethesda did a good job of gobbling up a bunch of smaller companies like Arcane Studios and id Software, allowing each of them to keep their culture, keep their product lines going. Like I said, we'll see how Microsoft handles that whole mess now that Bethesda itself has been acquired. So it happens sometimes. It often doesn't. You're right about that. I think people still end up doing it anyway, though, because at the time those decisions are made, it's basically, we got to take a chance on this working out or we're just playing out of business. It's a do or die or last ditch effort thing. Exactly. So as messy as some of these marriages end up being, it is usually preferable to the alternative, which is we just cease to exist right now. So it's pretty much a choice between bankruptcy or I get bought out and I take that money. I may or may not be able to continue on doing what I do, or I retire early or I just leave and start it all over again. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's definitely Ocean Story is not unique in that regard. 
it just amazes me that a $90 million company so strong, it's got these great tie-ins with Nintendo, with the Super Nintendo. It's got PC stuff. It's sort of got this global distribution network. It's not as strong as some other things are, but they got great inroads in Europe. They have their foot in the door in America. They got their foot in the door elsewhere. It just amazes me that the cost gets high enough that a $90 million company, even with investment of $30 million for the cash infusion that they got, can't make that work. It just makes me want to just sit down and go, yeah. where's the waste? Where's the bad decisions in this? I mean, it's it's not really. I mean, like I said, it, it all comes down to a matter of scale. Because as I said, when Ocean was a $90 million company, Acclaim and Electronic Arts were $500 million companies. $90 million sounds like a lot in a vacuum. But then when you see who they're competing against, these $500 million companies, they can afford to spend more money to get licenses. They can afford to spend money on advertising. They can afford to do more with retailers to do co-op stuff to buy shelf space. They can afford to make a wider variety of products, and if some of them fail, it doesn't matter as much because they're making more products. Plus, because they are making so many products, we've talked about this before, with shelf space being at a premium, they can say, we will give you the latest Madden game, but you also have to stock these other five games. These could be mediocre games that if Ocean came and said, look at these five games I've got for you, the retailer would say, get the heck out of my store. But because EA is saying, buy Madden plus these, then they're like, yes, of course, we will take all the games. So it's not about bad decisions. It's just a larger company can take more risks without betting the farm. They can spend more on marketing, they can spend more on brand awareness, and they can spend more greasing the wheels with retailers to make sure that their product gets prime shelf space. It's not a matter of Ocean making wrong decisions. It's a matter of companies in other parts of the world where they can harness more financial resources being able to just bury them. It's David versus Goliath. Really, the companies did everything right. You can do everything right. Once you enter that international stage, your competition could be so powerful that you can't do anything. Absolutely. You know, they never had their own breakout original IP hit, right? I mean, they didn't have a Grand Theft Auto or an Assassin's Creed or Prince of Persia like Ubisoft did. Coming up with some great original IP is a good way of potentially overcoming some of these problems. If you want to say there's one thing they did wrong, it's that when you focus on doing nothing but licenses and derivative products forever, there comes a point where that's just not going to be enough anymore. You could say maybe they could have tried to develop more original IP, but other than that, yeah, I mean, they weren't mismanaging the business. They were growing it consistently. They were growing it constantly. It was getting bigger and bigger. They were doing a good job, but the markets they had access to, both in terms of markets of people to sell into, and financial markets that they could tap just weren't as robust as what a company in the United States or Japan or France could do. They, like most of the other British software publishers, were just left behind. A sad end to a company with such promise. Now it is time to get out of the ocean and figure out what we discuss in our next episode. Well, I think it's time we retreat back across the pond again to the United States. Let's do something very early again. It's been a little bit since we've done something very early. 
Let's get ourselves back into the 60s and the 70s. Kind of this primordial period when this whole coin-operated video game thing was just getting going. Talk about some of the wonderful contributions of a gentleman by the name of Dave Nutting. Dave Nutting just passed away last year, sadly, though he was 90, I think, so, I mean, he lived a long life. He was a real pioneer in the business. When most people think Nutting, they think of Nutting Associates, where Nolan Bushnell got his start. This is not the same Nutting. This is Dave Nutting, who later founded Dave Nutting Associates, which is not Nutting Associates. But Bill and Dave were brothers. We've talked a little bit about that relationship in other episodes, particularly our Nutting Associates episode. But we haven't actually looked at the wide-ranging and truly crucial contributions that Dave Nutting and some of his engineers made to coin-operated games in the, the 1970s, which were truly revolutionary. That's definitely ripe for an examination. All right. A biography of Dave Nutting. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's Video Game History blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license. This is the end. This is the end, my friend, the end. But not for you. You can still email me, Jeffrey, at theycreateworlds.com and get your own They Create World stickers. Enjoy. Enjoy.